Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 29th, 2024. I'm your reader, Kim Dennis. Here is our first story. Farmers, utility, weigh in on energy rule. Area residents voice concerns as a Dubuque County Board considers regulations surrounding utility-scale projects such as wind farms by Benjamin Fisher. A work session for the Dubuque County Zoning Commission's development of a new ordinance regulating renewable energy installations drew an opinionated crowd to share concerns and ask questions this week. For nearly two years, the Commission has sought to rework existing county ordinance to bring it up to speed with the accelerating transition to renewable energy sources from fossil fuels. This week's work session attracted dozens of area residents, especially concerned farmers, who provided input to Commission members. The work session also featured a presentation by Alliant Energy, which does not currently have plans for future utility-scale renewable energy projects in Dubuque County, to explain some context about renewable energy projects in the area. I think it's one of the most challenging topics of our time, Commission member Ron Brettback told the crowd, speaking about renewable energy regulation. I see two distinct paths. One is philosophical about whether we want this type of utility size project in this county period. The other area we've been asked to do is to rework the ordinance. A lot of us here don't think it's where it should be. Many of the concerns voiced at the meeting surrounded utility scale projects taking agricultural land out of production. We tried to preserve farmland by creating the A-2 zoning to take less land out of production said farmer and former Dubuque County Supervisor Wayne Demmer. Now, we're almost in reverse because we're going to take land out of production for solar or wind. Justin Voss, Senior Strategic Project Manager for Alliant, explained how his company has approached projects on farmland elsewhere in Iowa. Each wind turbine takes up between half and one acre, including the access road to get to it, he said. A wind farm of 30,000 acres would usually have around 60 turbines, so actually only took 60 acres out of production. Foss reiterated that Alliant has no current proposal in Dubuque County for future utility-scale projects, but that other companies could approach landowners with lease offers. Dubuque County Farmers last year reported receiving offers from companies seeking to lease their land for renewable developments. Dubuque County farmer Craig Recker long has watched renewable energy's expansion with concern and said at the meeting he thought too many farmers leasing their land to utilities would harm small towns' economies. How many tractors is Alliant Energy going to buy that the farmer was buying, he said. How many tires is he going to buy to keep his equipment going? How much fertilizer is he going to buy? How can that be good for small towns? Foss said in his presentation that other communities consider utility-scale renewable energy key to future economic development. As we think about the large manufacturing facilities, the large businesses, every single one of them that comes to Iowa looking for land, one of the first questions they're asking is, how can I get more renewable energy, he said. Farmer Matt Kutch expressed a common concern that the practice of leasing farmland to utilities would drive land rent above farmers' reach. 
If we keep letting these industries come in and build, there's not going to be a family farm anymore, he said. It's going to be a corporation farm. And you've got these guys going around running ground. Well, they can buy a farm that's absolute garbage, put a solar farm on it, get this high dollar rent, turn around and rent two more farms. Then you're asking me to compete against these people. Another attendee noted, though, that high rent rates paid by utilities can save farmers who otherwise face financial ruin. Breitbach called the practice Kutch described as financial arbitrage and said he would carefully try to guard against it in the county's new ordinance. Austin Brown, a volunteer firefighter, said he worried about local emergency responders' abilities to handle renewable energy crises. We don't have the proper training for it, he said. My concern is that with all of this vegetation you have growing up around installations, grass fires spread quickly. You can't spray water on electrical infrastructure. Commission member David George, a career electric utility professional, said he shared that concern. We have that somewhat addressed in the current draft, he said. It's not just the fire departments. It's all the emergency services. I was on the volunteer fire department, too. Same thing went on with ethanol plants when they were new. County residents can learn more about the Renewable Energy Ordinance being developed and provide comments at dubuquecountyiowa.gov slash renewable energy. Taking a leap. Local residents celebrate February 29th birthdays and couples anniversaries by Elizabeth Kelsey. Martine Lyon is celebrating her 16th birthday today. In honor of the occasion, her husband Jim Lyon, with whom she celebrated her 37th anniversary of marriage in December, bought her a sweet 16 birthday card. The bizarre math is explained by the fact that Martine of Dubuque was born on February 29, 1960, making her a leap day baby. She is one of approximately 5 million people worldwide whose birthday officially occurs every four years during a leap year, when the shortest month of the year gets an extra day. It's kind of fun to see people's reactions when you tell them your date of birth, Martine Lyons said. Young forever. Leap years account for the fact that it actually takes 365.242 days for Earth to orbit the sun. So an extra day is added to the Gregorian calendar every four years to keep the months and seasons in sync. However, there's a bit more tricky math involved. Years divisible by 100 do not have a leap day, but years divisible by both 100 and 400 do. Numbers aside, what leap years mean for folks like Lion is a chance to celebrate their birth on its actual day rather than the day before or after. Usually, when I had a real birthday as a child, I had a more substantial present to make up for the three I didn't really have, said, said Lyon, who grew up in LeBlanc, France. Lyon moved to the U.S. in 1985 as part of a University of Iowa exchange program while she was pursuing a master's degree in English. After meeting her husband, she settled in the Hawkeye State and taught French, including 14 years at Wallert Catholic High School and 20 years at Hempstead High School. When I was teaching how to say your birthday in French, I would say, I am 10, or I am 14, and the kids would look at me and say, what is she talking about? Lion recalls. One of them actually would figure out that I am a leap year baby. Lion, who recently retired, 
said that she had several colleagues over the years who shared her birthday, but only one student that she knew of. Beth Oberhofer of Dubuque also was born on February 29th. She is celebrating her 11th birthday this year, meaning she is now the same age as her daughter. My son is 13, and every time he has a birthday now, he says, I'm older than you, and I'll always be older than you now, Oberhofer said laughing. I just like to say that I'll be young forever. Oberhofer's mother's birthday is February 29th, excuse me, February 28th. So when she was growing up, the two shared a celebration. Half of the birthday cake was my design, and half of it was her design, she said. When she turned 14, Oberhofer's parents jokingly tried to convince her that she wouldn't be allowed to get a driver's permit until she was 14 in leap years, meaning she would be 56. The teen wasn't fooled, however. Unique. When Heather and Michael Klassen of Dyersville, Iowa, began dating in 2015, they had both already been married twice and initially agreed they weren't looking for a third. But as their bond deepened over the next five years, Heather began to wonder if a proposal might be coming. In February of 2020, Heather and Michael went to Milwaukee to visit the Harley-Davidson Museum based on their shared love of the motorcycles. Heather thought Michael would pop the question when they went out for a fancy dinner on February 28th, but it was at the museum the next day that Michael got down on one knee. He had coordinated the proposal with museum staff who were ready with a banner, t-shirts, and more. It was specifically that day because it was leap day, Michael said with a wry smile. I planned it because I knew she was how she was with dates, and I knew she would celebrate this day, and I was like, I'm only going to give her every four years to celebrate this day. Heather said she does mark every occasion in their relationship down to the day Michael made her barbecue chicken pizza for the first time. But she doesn't begrudge him for choosing the least common day of the year to propose. You want something that's unique to you and your relationship and your love, she said. I think that's maybe the word to describe our relationship over all the years, unique. So why would we have an engagement day, not have a day, an engagement day that is unique? And when the COVID-19 pandemic put the kibosh on Michael and Heather's plans for a destination wedding on the beach, they topped off their unique relationship by returning to the Harley-Davidson Museum for their wedding on May 1st, 2021. The same day the classes got engaged, Ashley and Danielle Meyer got married. But the reason behind the Ashbury Cup Asbury couple's wedding on February 29, 2020, was a bit different. The two had met in January of 2019 and were engaged one month later on February 28th. I wanted to get married the next day because I was so in love, but we told my parents and my dad said, if you want me at your wedding, you're going to have to be engaged for at least a year, Danielle said. So we waited a year and had it on the 29th of February, 2020, which was really special. Rhonda Harstad of Benton, Wisconsin, was always a numbers person. So when she and her husband, Cameron, decided to tie the knot at the Little Church of the West in Las Vegas in 1992, she knew she wanted to do so on 229-92. Their attempt to time the marriage down to the minute was less successful. We thought it would have been cool to be married at 229 in the afternoon, but I was told you either do 2.15 or 2.30. 
So we chose the 215 slot and hoped we'd still be saying I do by 229, Rhonda said. They made us go a little quicker because they had someone else coming in at 2.30, but it's still very special. Ho-Chunk Nation leader shares his people's story. Tribal Historic Preservation Officer speaks to a crowd of more than 100 people at Loras College by Maya Bond. As Bill Nawasajai's Quackenbush described the Ho-Chunk Nation's history along the Mississippi River to a crowd in Dubuque, he stressed the importance of upholding the oral histories passed down over thousands of years. Quackenbush, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Ho-Chunk Nation, detailed the history of his people, whose ancestral land spans Wisconsin and much of the Midwest during a presentation Wednesday at Loras College. Quackenbush previously served as a land specialist focusing on natural resources management and as a tribal historian tribal monitor, and fire investigator for the Ho-Chunky Nation. He also serves on several state and federal boards, such as the Wisconsin Intertribal Repatriation Committee, Kickapoo Valley Reserve and National Association of Tribal Historic Preservation Officers. Quackenbush grew up and still lives in Millston, Wisconsin, and told more than 100 people on Wednesday that he and his brother spent their childhood summers sitting with their father, who frequently worked with woodcrafting, cording flutes or handles for black ash baskets. He noted that black ash baskets often were sold on the roadside in Wisconsin during his childhood in the 1960s and 70s. Because Ho-Chunk people were frequently denied jobs, so they turned to selling the baskets as a means to make money. Quackenbush said Ho-Chunk history has been passed down from ancestors who lived as long ago as when the last glacier in Wisconsin was receding north. There are Ho-Chunk stories of when large pieces of the glacier broke off, temporarily damming the Wisconsin River. That caused the river to back up and form a former lake near Richland Center, Wisconsin. The Ho-Chunk people were living, observing, and watching this land, watching this, and having thoughts that we better save the history here, because our kids are going to want to know how all this unfolded before their eyes, he said. They were standing in a place called, today, the Driftless Area. Science later backed up this story when scientists studied the soil, asked asked the Ho-Chunk Nation people if they had any history that could point to the cause of its unique characteristics. Their story of the glacier damming the river was corroborated by the characteristics of the soil, which was later named Nuxmaranchikenshi. Quackenbush also detailed how the U.S. government forced the Ho-Chunk people onto a reservation near the Turkey River in northeast Iowa in the mid-1800s, before later forcing them to the Long Prairie, Mississippi. Excuse me, that's Long Prairie, Minnesota. You have to stop and think. The land they were giving tribes in general for reservations were lands that were unfit for anything else at the time, for logging, for agricultural, for anything. It was unfit and it was unusable, he said in an interview with the Telegraph Herald. So they made them the reservation sites, but they wanted us to become American farmers. The Ho-Chunk people were moved again to Crow Creek, South Dakota, where they built dugout canoes and traveled down to Winnebago, Nebraska. 
About half stayed there, and the rest continued on back to the Wisconsin area, he said. Quackenbush said during the presentation that experts often try to piece together Ho-Chunk history based on artifacts, but never ask the Ho-Chunk people what they know about their own history. We are people of peace, and we want to share what we know, our knowledge, to ensure that we, together as humans, know we not only survived in this area, but we excelled, and how to take care of the earth that we lived on, he told the Telegraph Herald. Jean Heyer, who lives in southern Dubuque County, said she appreciated learning about how science and oral history matched up on events that took place thousands of years ago. It's fantastic to hear how science supports the stories and the stories support the science, she said. Eric Anglada, who lives near Dickiesville, Wisconsin, said it is a privilege to have met Quackenbush multiple times and to have him present at Loras, considering his extensive knowledge of the region's history. This is really significant for him to come down and offer real history, native history, from a native perspective, Anglada said. Now we're moving to page A2, and on this page, there's a Throwback Thursday article about Dubuque's third hospital celebrating their silver anniversary in February of 1974. But let's move to the news in brief. Police, Wisconsin man, leads law enforcement on two high-speed chases in Dubuque. Police said a man led authorities on two high-speed chases Wednesday in Dubuque. Jackie's T. Murphy, 29, of Madison, Wisconsin, was arrested at 12.28 p.m. Wednesday in the 12,000 block of English Mill Road on warrants charging two counts of probation violations and two counts of failure to appear. He subsequently was arrested on charges of domestic assault, operating a vehicle without the owner's consent, and eluding. Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Luke Bach wrote in an email to the Telegraph Herald that officers responded at approximately 10.20 a.m. to the 2700 block of Ventura Drive for a report of a disturbance. Murphy was identified as being involved in the disturbance and had fled in a vehicle before officers arrived on the scene, Bach wrote. Officers located Murphy in the vehicle in the area of First and Main Streets. Officers attempted to make contact with Murphy but he drove from the scene, striking a parked vehicle in the process, Bach wrote. Dubuque police pursued Murphy's vehicle west on Dodge Street to the area of Hill Street. Police terminated the pursuit due to high speeds and traffic conditions, Bach wrote. Law enforcement relocated Murphy's vehicle near US-20 and Seiple Road. The Iowa State Patrol then pursued Murphy's vehicle west on US-20 then east on the highway to a quarry on English Mill Road, Bach wrote. A trooper then took Murphy into custody. Dubuque man sentenced to federal prison for child pornography conviction. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for soliciting sexually explicit images from a child under the age of 13. Stephen Neidert, 47, re recently received the sentence in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, from the U.S. District Court Chief Judge C.J. Williams after pleading guilty to one count of receipt of child pornography. Neidert also must pay $9,000 in restitution and to serve five years of supervised release after his prison term. There is no parole in the federal system.
According to a news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa, Neidert admitted in a plea agreement that he digitally communicated with a girl younger than 13 in November and December 2017 and asked her to send him sexually explicit photos. The victim's mother discovered the communications and reported them to the police. Officers then used Neidert's social media usernames to identify him as the individual communicating with the victim, according to the release. Neidert's Dubuque home was searched in 2019, where the release states officers discovered thousands of digital files containing child sexual abuse material, as well as images of the original victim. Country music artist slated to perform in New Vienna. A singer-songwriter based in Nashville, Tennessee, will play a fundraising concert next week in New Vienna. Corey Farley will perform at 8 p.m. March 9th at New Vienna Hall Event Center, 7271 Columbus Street, according to an online announcement. Doors open at 7 p.m. Tickets are $35 and are available online at tinyurl.com slash Farley. Ticket buyers must be age 21 or older. Proceeds benefit the Dubuque County Farm Bureau Education Outreach Program. A Decorah native, Farley has opened for country stars Alan Jackson, Keith Urban, Mary S- Marty Stewart, Jason Aldean, and others. On page A2, there's also an article about the Platteville Chamber reporting gains in tourism visits and related revenue in 2023. Related to Platteville, Wisconsin, the area leaders applauded early indicators that 2023 was another standout year for tourism. Moving to page A5 of the paper, Medical Group Closes Cascade Clinic by Daniel Charland, Cascade, Iowa. Some patients of Grand River Medical Group faced a sudden change recently with the closure of the healthcare provider's Cascade Clinic. Iowa Workforce Development records state the company laid off 52 of its 375 employees in early February, months after it acquired the Cascade Clinic and others in August 2023. In statements after the transition and layoffs, the healthcare providers stated the changes would result in minimal disruption for patients and not affect patient care. A clarifying letter was later sent to patients. According to that letter, The Cascade Clinic is closed because the facility's care provider no longer works at Grand River. The letter said the clinic will be closed for the foreseeable future. The letter said all appointments that had been scheduled at the facility, including lab and radiology appointments ordered by its former primary care provider, were canceled and would have to be rescheduled after enrolling with a new primary care provider. The Cascade Clinic was formerly a Unity Point Health walk-in primary care clinic. The location was acquired in 2023 by Grand River Medical Group, along with the Family Medicine and Women's Health Clinic on Pennsylvania Avenue in Dubuque and the Family Medicine and Walk-in Care Clinic in Piosta. Staff at the clinics became employees of Grand River. The letter sent by Grand River referred patients at the Cascade Clinic to the clinics of Dubuque and Piosta, where, which will remain available for future primary care needs and can assist patients in finding other 
primary care provider at a new clinic location. Grand River Medical Group was founded in 2016 when Dubuque Family Practice, Dubuque Internal Medicine, and Dubuque Pediatrics merged. Grand River Medical Group did not respond to requests for comment. Man threatens to bulldoze credit union. Police said a Jackson County, Iowa man threatened on social media to damage branches of a Dubuque-based credit union. Michael J. Trent's 58 of Maquoketa was arrested at 10.45 a.m. Tuesday at Dubuque Law Enforcement Center on a warrant charging threat of terrorism and violation of a no-contact order. Threat of terrorism is a Class D felony in Iowa, punishable by up to five years in prison if convicted. Court documents state that Trent's made posts on social media threatening to use a bulldozer to attack due-track community credit union locations. Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Luke Box said Trent's had been prohibited from visiting the credit union since 2023. This all started last year, and Dutrack had a no-contact order in place, Box said. Court doc- documents state that a Dutrack employee signed a trespass order in October 23, to, 2023, banning Trent's from all branches due to ongoing issues originally stemming from a dispute Trent's initiated about money. Box said Trent was a former member of the credit union. Trent was arrested October 20th on a warrant charging third-degree harassment and two counts of violation of a no-contact order in connection with the original case. Police, police were alerted February 8th about recent social media posts Trent had made against the Dupac Dutrack employee and branches of the credit union document state. Trent wrote on social media that he wanted his money and if he didn't receive it, I plan to purchase a used bulldozer, and that he was going to bulldoze every Dutrack location document state. Trent also posted to social media a warning that collateral damage could occur and that all Dutrack locations will be closed for demolition day. Demolition today, documents state. Moving on to the opinion page. Interloping Along Without a Wayfinding System by Kurt Ulrich. Rule America. At dusk a couple of days ago, I was driving along a two-lane county road not far from my place, one that follows a ridgeline to a nearby town. On my right, high in a bare tree up ahead was what I assumed was a hawk, a proud creature, quite common out here. I started to say hello as I passed, and noted with surprise that she had ears. So I knew it to be an eastern screech owl. Her presence made me think of a Eurasian eagle owl in New York City, an owl named Flacco, one that escaped from the Central Park Zoo a year ago, taking up residence in the park. Zoo officials tried unsuccessfully to capture Flacco and return him to his cage at the zoo, but he wasn't having it. As you might imagine, he became a major attraction in the park. New Yorkers were thrilled with the independence and the free-spiritedness Flacco represented. However, they also feared he'd feed on a rat that had been poisoned, but he seemed to thrive until the end of last week when he slammed into a window, fell to earth, and as we all do eventually, and died. There's something about birds and their ability to soar above the bonds of our earth that is inspirational and mystical. 
Standing in a parking lot of a liquor store situated by the Mississippi River a week ago, I watched two American bald eagles soaring high above tree-filled bluffs, circling higher and higher until they were out of sight, never flapping their wings, riding thermals to the heavens. I was envious. The only thing missing was a soundtrack, maybe Jupiter from Holst's The Planets or Mozart's Exolite Jubilete. Over the next weekend, I pulled into a lane late in the evening, rousing half a dozen deer that had bedded down for the night, as well as a woodchuck, better than the term groundhog, that scampered onto the lane, racing ahead of me almost to the house before diving into the underbrush. Sorry to bother y'all, as historically you were here first, and I am an interloper. Sometimes I feel like I'm also an age interloper, never expecting to become this old. It's been a few years since my wife took the last boat home, me watching from the dock, not understanding any of it. Soon, though, I'll see sails on the horizon, knowing my ship will finally arrive, but not yet, not now. I have too much to do, too many people to meet, too many brief chats to have with others about nothing much. There's a global positioning system, GPS, in my car, and I finally broke down and attempted to use it without the assistance of others. Everything was going well until I took a detour through a downtown district before crossing a big river to another state to pick up some scotch. Every block for five blocks I got, in 300 feet, turned left from a female voice that really began to annoy me. After a couple of make-a-legal-U-turn, admonitions, I pulled over to peruse the car's owner's owner's manual. Nothing. GPS has its own booklet, one not in my car. Once I got to the original destination entered into the system, the woman's voice disappeared. I'm sticking with maps in the glove compartment. I fully realized that I am stuck between who I once was and who I should be, but I don't care. Spare me the brave new world and pour me another. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Kim Dennis. If you have comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now, We'll turn to today's obituaries. Ralph Joseph Manternak, 87, of Rural Cascade, Iowa, passed away peacefully surrounded by his family on Saturday, February 24, 2024, at his home. Visitation for Ralph will be held from 2 to 8 p.m. on Friday, March 1, 2024, at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade, Iowa, where a prayer service will be held at 1.30 p.m., and a Knights of Columbus Rosary will be held at 7 p.m. Friends may also call from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2, 2024, at the funeral home. A Mass of Christian Burial for Ralph will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, March 2, at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade, Iowa. Doris Catherine Virtue, formerly Oldenburg, journeyed to her destination with our Lord and Savior on Monday, February 26, 2024, at Midwest Medical Senior Care Facility, surrounded by family. 
a funeral mass will be held at 11.30 a.m. Saturday, March 2nd, 2024, at St. Mary's Catholic Church, Galena, where friends may call after 10 a.m. until the time of Mass. The burial will be in the church cemetery. Sister Michaela, Marianne Gallus, passed away at 10.14 a.m. February 25, 2024, at Clare House. The Mass of Christian Burial will be held at Clare House Chapel, Mount St. Francis Center, at 1 p.m. Monday, March 11th. Guests unable to participate, uh, guests unable to attend, may participate via live stream. Burial of Cremains will be in Sisters of St. Francis burial site. Gerald Jerry Conrady, age 88, passed away Saturday, February 24, 2024, at Ben Ashley State Veterans Home in Knoxville, Tennessee. There will be a private service at a later date. Jane A. Bartow, 90, of Lancaster, died on Monday, February 26, 2024. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, March 4th, and from 10 to 11 a.m. Tuesday, March 5th, at Lancaster United Methodist Church, where services will follow. Burial will take place in Hillside Cemetery in Lancaster. James H. Rawling, 84, of St. Donatus, died on Tuesday, February 27, 2024. Visitation will be held from 1 to 5 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, and from 9 to 10 a.m. Monday, March 4th, at St. Donatus Catholic Church, where services will follow. Burial will follow in the church cemetery. Ricky A. Billmeyer, 17, of Dubuque, died on Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Visitation will be held from noon to 2 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd at Bear Funeral Home. Private burial will take place at a later date. Richard Lewis, an acclaimed comedian, has died. He was 76. And returning to the opinion page, Uncertain, U- Uncertain Ukraine War Grinds On by Arthur Sear. February brought the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the start of the third year of war. Despite brutal efforts by the much larger invader, including massed missile attacks, the defenders are holding on and, at times, gaining ground. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine remains as energetic and committed as ever, including travel to the U.S. and elsewhere, to generate support. Time magazine named him Person of the Year. The war in Ukraine proceeds with devastating, perhaps irreparable damage to the influence and reputation of President Vladimir Putin of Russia and also the military of his nation. Rightly, the Red Army of the Soviet Union was greatly respected and greatly feared by the nations occupied by that enormous force. After all, this was the military that fought and ultimately destroyed the bulk of the enormous war machine of Nazi Germany. The vast majority of the mechanized units of the Wartemat were deployed on the Eastern Front, a theater where the war was literally a fight to the collective death, without the restraints present in combat involving American, British, and others in the West. Clearly, Putin and associates miscalculated how early Russia's military would be to able to occupy Ukraine and take control, in Cold War fashion. As an armed conflict throughout history, determination and courage of the people of the Ukraine has been a vital factor. But Russian forces have also proven extraordinarily deficient, 
mechanized weapons and equipment have broken down to a striking degree. Many units proved ineffective, and general disorganization was accompanied by the, accompanied the large but clumsy invasion. Clear by now is that the end of the Soviet Union also has opened the door to corruption and decay, undeniably and extraordinarily widespread. In a particularly shocking development, dead Russian soldiers have simply been left where they lie on the battlefield by retreating comrades. Not abandoning comrades, alive or dead, is a traditional tenet of military culture. The Biden's administration's provision of Patriot missile defense and other systems to Ukraine is important. The Patriot is part of a great revolution in military technologies over the 20th and 21st centuries. In World War II, various changes created a much more fluid battle environment. The tank and other motorized vehicles, long-range heavily armed aircraft, modern electronic communications, and other innovations drastically altered the characteristics of fighting. One important invention is the tube-launched optically-tracked wire-guided missile, or TOW, T-O-W, a relatively portable, lethal, anti-tank weapon. The German V-1 rocket of World War II was a very early example of a guidance system within a missile. Related technologies have evolved to an extraordinary degree since that time. In the spring of 1972, North Vietnam launched a mass, massive armored invasion of South Vietnam. Tau missiles, usually launched from helicopters, completely devastated large numbers of Soviet-supplied tanks along with other targets. This offensive was dis decisively defeated. Other precision-guided munitions, PGMs, include the Stinger anti-aircraft missile, this weapon proved important in defeating the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan over a decade, starting in 1979. From 1973, the Pentagon began a satellite network for Earth navigation. The Global Positioning System, GPS, solved the fundamental problem in war of accurately locating the enemy plus your own position. Precision munitions, along with advanced weaponry in general, massive log logistical and supply capabilities, and skilled professionals were vital to the remarkable Allied liberation of Kuwait from Iraq occupation in 1999. But Ukraine remains at war, and U.S. support is now uncertain. That brings us to the sports page and the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week, Ty Harden. Harden ends Prep Hoops career with a flourish by Shannon Mum. Ty Harden's final high school basketball game will be a hard one to forget. The McQuokota senior dropped a career-high 45 points in a 97-95 quadruple overtime loss to Marion in the Iowa Class 3A Substate 3 semifinal. The Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week added 10 rebounds, 5 steals, 4 assists, and a pair of blocks in his final outing. In the Cardinals' first round game against Xavier, he scored 26 points and added 6 rebounds, 4 assists, and 1 steal in a 69-62 win. During the Marion game, Ty put us, put us on his back in one of the best individual performances I've seen, McQuokota coach Matt Harmon said. He has carried us to wins all season long, and we just came up a bit short that night. Harden played all four years on the varsity team and ended his career as Makokota's third all-time leading scorer. He averaged 21.4 points per game his senior season after recording 17.6 as a junior, 10.4 as a sophomore, 
and 1.7 in his freshman season. Ty's game has continued to grow every year, Hartman said. I've been watching him since he was in fifth grade, and the steps he's taken have been incredible. He's overcome adversity and injuries and has just worked extremely hard to get to where he is today. Harden said he felt more confident and assertive on the court this season and took on more of a quiet leadership role with the team. There were some younger guys getting a lot of playing time, and I wanted to make sure they had someone to look up to, he said. It was also important to do what I could to help the team grow together. Harden finished his high school career with 1,092 points and proved to be an offensive threat from anywhere on the floor. It's pretty exciting to know I've left a mark in the record books, he says. It means a lot to me. While the Mary game was his career best of 45 points, he scored 40 earlier in the season against Carmanche in the 85-73 win. Ty is able to score in a variety of ways, and his teammates did a great job of finding him when he was open, Hartman said. He showed a lot more confidence this season in his all-around game, and his jump shot has improved so much. He's a very hard worker and never and just never complains. Hartman added that the four-overtime loss to Marion was heartbreaking for Harden and the rest of the players, despite Harden's impressive performance. I knew he'd give every one of those points back if it meant we'd win the game, Hartman said. The entire team invested a lot this season, and they fully expected to win that game. It was a devastating loss. Harden said it was difficult seeing this chapter of his high school career come to a close. You never want it to end, but you know it has to at some point, he said. Added Hartman, as a, as good of a basketball player as Ty is, He's an even better person. I'm so proud to have had him represent our basketball program for four years. He is going to be missed. And in women's college basketball, Clark wins opener by Steve Stoltz. It was nice and dry inside the Keel Center Saturday night, but it was raining threes for Clark guards Taylor Norris and Madison Lindauer. The pair combined for eight three-pointers, propelling NAIA number five-ranked Clark to an 80-67 win over Central Methodist in the Heart of America Conference Tournament quarterfinals. Top-seeded Clark will play in the semifinals Saturday evening against fourth-seeded Benedictine, a 75-59 quarterfinal winner over Mount Mercy. Norris led all scorers with 23 points, including 19 in the last 14 minutes of the first half. And Lindauer added 14 points, including two three-pointers in the last three minutes of the game that proved to be the dagger to a Central Methodist comeback attempt. This was a true game of runs tonight for us, Clark coach Adam Hawking said. We knew they were, they were capable of that and that they were not going to go away. We just kept our composure, and I think that's a reflection of our upperclassmen leadership, especially on the defensive end. The final score was Clark's largest lead of the game. Both teams took turns with runs the entire game. Central Methodist put the pride on notice immediately, making its first four shots for a quick 10-4 lead less than three minutes into the game. Clark dug back into the game thanks to six free throws, and the first Norris basket with 4-10 left to cut the Eagles' lead to 15-13. From there, Norris exploded like a box of fireworks, scoring 17 points the rest of the half, starting with back-to-back threes in the last 1 minute 43 seconds of the half to go from a 14 to go from a 17 to 18 deficit 
to a 22-17 lead at the end of the half. Clark could not extend its lead against the very aggressive play of Central Methodist until Cascade, Iowa native Nicole McDermott nailed a three halfway a three halfway through the quarter to give the Pride a 30-21 lead. From there, Norris made four straight shots, including two threes, and Lindauer hit her first three of the game. Clark hit its last seven shots of the half to open up a 45-35 halftime advantage. It felt good to help my teammates tonight and put us in a good spot, Norris said. If it's a night like this when the shots are going in, I'm going to keep looking for shots. We were just riding the hot hand tonight. I feel like it could be anyone on our roster at any time. Just when it looked like Clark was taking control of the game, Central Methodist hit the pride with a 9-0 run to start the third quarter, and suddenly Clark's lead was down to 45-44. Clark got another spurt as McDormand scored. Taylor Hasse got a basket on an offensive rebound and free throw, and Lindauer hit another three to bump the Clark lead to 53-47. McDermott and Hasse added baskets, and then Norris, off the bench once again, put on consecutive highlight reel layups that left her defender grasping at air. Those two baskets ended the quarter with Clark ahead 63-51. Central Methodist put a 7-0 run together to start the fourth quarter, but could get no closer than seven points. Clark closed the game with a 10-3 run highlighted by the two Lindauer threes from the corner that closed out the 13-point win. Although points off of offensive rebounds, 17, and turnovers, 14, kept Central Methodist in the game, Hawking was pleased with his team's effort. The stat I love is we won all four quarters, said Hawking. We out-rebounded them, 48-35. We made 10 threes, and those are things that stood out to me tonight. We had balanced scoring again with Taylor Hasse and Nicole McDermott, both getting 18 points and 12 rebounds, and our two shooters off the bench, Maddie and Taylor, both had four big threes for us. When we have balanced scoring and 15 assists, it means we were really sharing the basketball and getting some really good quality plays. Martin shares MVP in ARC. UD's Thomas, Loris's Fleckenstein both earned first team recognition by Jim Leitner. Sammy Martin has been one of the American Rivers Conference's best women's college basketball players since she arrived at Loris College four years ago. After earning first-team all-conference her first three seasons with the Dewhawks, the former Platteville High School standout went one step further. The ARC named her one of the three most valuable players, along with co-college senior guard Katie Kirkham and Wartburg College senior forward Jaden Murphy. Martin became just the second Dewhawk to land MVP accolades, joining Katie Langenmeyer, Langmeyer from the 2013-14 campaign. She averaged 14.7 points per game to rank fourth in the league while shooting 51.1% from the field in ARC games and 74.6% from the free throw line to rank fifth in the league. After becoming a member of the school's 1,000-point club last season, she raised her total to 1,445 this season. Martin also pulled down 7.1 rebounds per game and collected 23 steals, averaging 1.4 per game. The Dewhawks finished 23-4 overall and 14-2 in the ARC, 
with the only conference losses coming against league champion Wartburg. The Knights also defeated Loris in the conference tournament final. Martin has been a first-team all-conference player for eight consecutive seasons. She finished her high school career with the most points, 1,553, and rebounds, 1,002, of any player in the Platteville Girls basketball history and made all Southwest Wisconsin Conference accolades all four seasons. The University of Dubuque's Tabria Thomas and Loris's Madison Fleckenstein earned spots on the eight-player ARC team. Thomas, a graduate student from Elizabeth, Illinois, who propped at River Ridge High School, landed first-team all-conference honors for the fourth time in her career. She ranked fifth in the league with 14.3 points per game and shot 79.5% from the free-throw line for third-best percentage in the league. She is a member of Dubuque's 1,000-point club. Thomas grabbed 4.7 rebounds and 1.7 steals per game in 16 league games this season. The Spartans finished 9-7 in the conference to host a first-round tournament game. Fleckenstein, a fifth-year player from Dubuque-Hempstead, made first-team honors for the second time in her career after landing on the second team a year ago. She averaged 10.8 points in 13 league games and grabbed 3.6 rebounds per game in helping the Dewhawks to runner-up finishes in the second regular season and tournament. Fleckenstein reached the 1,000-point plateau this season and finished with 1,058. Loris also landed Madison Haslow, a fifth-year forward from Crystal Lake, Illinois, and Silvana Scarcella, a junior guard from De Plains, Illinois, on the ARC's eight-player season team, second team, along with Dubuque's Megan Teal, a senior guard from Delavan, Illinois. The four-player honorable mention list included Dubuque's Car- Carson Kirshner, a senior forward from Bangor, Wisconsin, and Loris's Daniela Gerald, a junior guard from Vernon Hills, Illinois. Warburg's Bob Amsbury receives the ARC Coach of the Year Award, honor after leading the Knights to the regular season and tournament titles. The only ARC team to make the NCAA Division III tournament, the Knights will host the first and second rounds this weekend. In the lifestyle section, journey through America's favorite pastime. Dubuque Museum of Art exhibits highlight baseball and other works by Megan Gloss. We're talking baseball, Kuzuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. The words from singer-songwriter Terry Cashman's talking baseball adorn a wall located on the second floor mezzanine of the Dubuque Museum of Art. It sets the tone and merges two exhibitions together that not only explore America's favorite pastime, but also offer a look at Dubuque's impact on the game, as well as a nod to national history. It's not just about baseball, said Dubuque Museum of Art curatorial director Stacy Peterson. It's a snapshot of American history and the early impact that baseball had on it, from the early days of the game to the civil rights movement to today. Picturing America's pastime, a snapshot of the photograph collection at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum recently opened in the Dubuque Museum of Art's 
Falb Family Gallery. The touring exhibition from Cooperstown, New York, will be on display through Father's Day, Sunday, June 16th. Capturing the cultural history of the sport through the lens of some of its greatest photographers, the collection includes 51 pictures in sepia, color, and black and white spanning 1966 through 2012. Historical highlights include moments featuring Babe Ruth, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and Yogi Berra, among others. What's interesting is that there are some photographs in this collection that people have likely never seen before, Peterson said. They capture not only the game, but the feeling and the story of the game. Among them, narrowed down from a collection including more than 350,000 images, is a photo of Lou Gehrig taken by an unknown photographer. The Iron Horse sits and smiles among his teammates, having recently returned from learning of a diagnosis that would later be named after him. Another shows a dramatic slide into third base by Ty Cobb, Roberto Clemente taking a glance over his shoulder, Jackie Robinson opening a door marked keep out, and Dorothy Kovalchik eyeing a pitch at the bat. A compelling companion to the exhibit is Picturing Dubuque Baseball, located just outside the Falb Family Gallery. The collection, which also will be on display through June 16th, succeeds in giving viewers a vast overview in a small space of the story of Dubuque baseball culture and its influence on the game as it's known today. It was curated by Dubuque baseball historian John Pregler and includes more than 100 images, newspaper clippings, artifacts, and other memorabilia. Aaron Neese, the Dubuque Museum of Art's graphic designer, assisted with the layout along the curved wall. The first baseball tournaments in recorded history were played in Dubuque in 1865, Pregler said. The second professional baseball league was co-founded by a Dubuque native in 1879, so here you really get to see the evolution of baseball from Dubuque to its influence nationally. Images range from the 1979 Dubuque Reds, the first North Northwestern League that included two future baseball Hall of Famers, the to the documentation of meetings that took place at Hotel Julian Dubuque, ultimately leading to the creation of the American League. Also highlighted are the careers of baseball heavy hitters with Dubuque ties, such as World Series winning manager of the 1917 Chicago White Sox, Clarence Pants Rowland, and Hall of Famer Urban Red Faber shaking hands with the New York Yankee Babe Ruth on Red Faber Day at Comiskey Park in Chicago. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Kim Dennis. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>